This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Nativity, according to Abbé Constant-Henri Fouard, Episode 1. We want to welcome you to the Christmas episode of the Return to Order Moment. In this annual celebration, we attempt to help you deepen your celebration of this holy time by reading material that our listeners would be unlikely to find otherwise. This year, we turn to Abbé Constant-Henri Fouard, 1837-1903. through He was part of the tradition of priests who were best known for their scholarly work. In addition to his ecclesiastical duties, Father Fouard was a historian who traveled widely in Palestine, Syria, Greece, and Italy. His extensive travels bore fruit in his many books, including his The Christ, The Son of God, A Life of Jesus, from which these excerpts were taken. He had the ability to write about scenes of our Lord's life that could only come from one who spent considerable time there tracing the steps that our Lord himself took. It is also significant that Father Fouard's journey took place in an age when Palestine still looked and felt much as it did during the time of Christ. Without the modern traffic, industries, and tourist traps that one finds there today. Yet, Abbé Fouard always remembered that his scholarship had a religious purpose. In the preface, the author wrote, This life of Jesus is an act of faith. We only desire to make the Savior better known and loved. We decided to bring you this magnificent narrative over two episodes. This week, we will give you the setting of the Nativity and the condition of the people who live there. Then, we will speak of the Annunciation, the Visitation, and the Visions of St. Joseph. Next week, only five days before Christmas, we will hear of the Holy Family's journey to Bethlehem, the Nativity itself, the visit of the shepherds, and conclude with the presentation in the temple. It is the fervent prayer of everyone connected with the Return to Order moment that your Christmas celebration will be deeper and more blessed by our poor offering to you and, of course, to the babe in Bethlehem. Part 1. Judea in the Time of Christ Judea in the Time of Christ was despoiled of all her splendor. The Maccabees, pontiffs and kings of Israel during one century, had in that time seen their glories vanish together with their virtues. Jerusalem for the first time saw the Roman eagles within her walls. Pompey crossed the threshold of the Holy of Holies and gazed in astonishment upon that sanctuary, devoid of idol or image. The sovereignty of Judah had run its course. The servitude of Israel was begun. Herod hurried to Rome and was declared by the Senate King of Judea. After three years of conflict, the victorious Latin legions re-established his rule in Jerusalem. In vain did Herod beautify Judea with splendid monuments in order to divert attention from the bloody tragedies which turned his marble palaces red. To the Jews, his vast amphitheaters were scenes of spectacles as detestable as they were abhorrent. The baths and the porticos introduced novel customs, and the Roman eagle 
which spread its wings within the temple, profaned its sanctity. During thirty-four years, the prince wearied himself in fruitless endeavors to make the people forget his origin and their servitude. One body alone withstood the tempests and retained its authority. This was the Sanhedrin. The functions of the Sanhedrin were to interpret the law, to adjudge more important cases, and to exercise an exact surveillance over the administration of affairs. Hence, it became at one and the same time Parliament, High Court of Justice, and the supreme resort of instruction in Judea. During 400 years, the authority of this council had remained absolute. Herod was the first to sap its strength, but shrewd as he showed himself in usurping all other powers, he could not entirely cripple the Sanhedrin. The laws became mere matter for futile argument. The numerous sects, each one arrogating to itself the right of interpreting the law, furnish a most striking proof of the decline of Israel. The fame of three of these great parties has lived up to this day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Each proceeded along the downward path it had marked out for itself. Past all doubt, the Pharisees guarded the law of their God most faithfully. Yet in that law, the exact payment of tithes, interminable ablutions, and especially the observance of the Sabbath absorbed all their attention. Such a yoke as this was intolerable. The Sadducees threw it off openly. The scribes resigned themselves to enduring it merely for the sake of appearances. But for most part, under their religious exterior, they concealed nothing but bigotry and hypocrisy. And finally, we still have to speak of the strangest of all the Jewish sects, the Essenes. On the western borders of the Dead Sea, a verdant oasis gladdens the eye, wearied with those desert stretches of land, devastated by the fire of divine retribution. In its green recesses there lived, quoting the words of Pliny, an eternal people where there was never anyone born. No woman, no child was ever found among them. Youths only were admitted, and only after long probation. A rigorous discipline was imposed upon all. Absolute obedience, perpetual abstinence, and mortification were obligatory. Their only punishment was excommunication, by which the condemned man was constrained to live upon herbs and thus die slowly of hunger. Yet what was, in reality, the teaching of this sect? No one can say with any certainty, for it was not long-lived, and it kept its secret to the end inviolate. In this degenerate people, in the midst of this carnal Israel, the spiritual Israel was still alive, a chosen band, predestined to be of the kingdom of the Christ, holy souls who, 
by piously pondering the inspired truths, had therein discovered the proper lineaments of a picture which prophecy had painted of the true Messiah. In the very hour of man's fall, God had declared to Adam that one should be born of the seed of the woman, and thereafter he set apart from the race of Shem one people of the stock of Abraham, and from that people one tribe, the tribe of Judah, from which was to be born the Messiah. As Moses saw him, he is a prophet, his equal in power. In David's eyes, he is a king, his son, heir to his glories, as well as his misfortunes. One after another, the prophets each added a line which foreshadowed the advent of divinity. Bethlehem is to be his birthplace, Galilee his native land, a virgin his mother. He will preach the good news to the pure and humble of heart. He will enter Sion mounted upon the foal of an ass. He shall be despised and rejected, led to the slaughter as a lamb. His vestments shall be parted. Lots shall be cast for his tunic, his hands and his feet pierced. Vinegar shall moisten his lips. Yet shall he become suspect to the malefactor's death, only that he may show forth the glory of his resurrection. His soul, snatched from the deep pit, and his body from corruption, that he may seat himself upon the right hand of Jehovah, henceforth to reign forever in the world of human hearts. The salvation of Israel is no longer that which the carnal-minded Jews had fancied, the triumph of their race, the joys and riches of this world. It is salvation in righteousness and holiness, won by penitence and the remission of sins. Part 2. The Annunciation to the Blessed Virgin Mary The Archangel Gabriel received of God a new mission. This time it was neither to the temple nor to the holy city that he must needs betake himself, but to Nazareth, an obscure village of Galilee, he was sent thither to a young kinswoman of Elizabeth named Mary, who was betrothed to a descendant of the house of David called Joseph. Sprung likewise from the seed of the great king, she was, according to the testimony of tradition, the daughter of Joachim and Anna. We do not know what combination of circumstances had banished these descendants of the kings of Israel from Bethlehem, the home of their family, but they all had fallen into poverty and obscurity. Thus then, it was a humble dwelling place, the cottage of Joachim and Anna, which the angel from heaven visited. For in accordance with the custom of the daughters of Judah, Mary was expected to seclude herself in the privacy of her home from the day on which her troth was plighted to Joseph. A light, which never before shone upon the mothers of Israel, had discovered to her the value of perpetual continence, and she was resolved never to know man. 
How was she to reconcile this inspiration from heaven with the promise made for her by her parents? It was a period of perplexity and an agonizing ordeal. Doubtless, by those same vows of chastity, she had hastened the day of the coming of the Messiah, when the celestial messenger appeared before her eyes and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. You are blessed among all women. Yet, having heard this, she was troubled at his saying, and she thought within herself what could be the meaning of such a salutation. But the angel resumed, Fear not at all, Mary, you have found grace in God's sight. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and shall bear a son, and you shall give him the name of Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give to him the throne of David his father. He shall reign eternally in the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary had meditated much upon the prophecies. She could not therefore mistake the purport of the angel's announcement. This child, Son of the Most High, King and Savior of men for all eternity, this could only be the Messiah and to her was to accrue the honor of bringing forth the desired of days. But the daughter of David had resolved to remain a virgin for God's sake, and despite this promise that she should be the mother of God, she continued steadfast in her inspired design. Unable to make the angel's words harmonize with this vow, she replied, How can this be, since I know not man? Gabriel immediately enlightened her. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, he said, and the power of the Most High shall enfold you within his shadow. Therefore it is that the Holy One, which shall be born of you, shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And it is now the sixth month for her who is called barren, because nothing is impossible unto God. This was sufficient to ensure Mary's entire abandonment to the will of the Almighty. She bowed down before the seraphic messenger. I am the handmaid of the Lord, she said. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. And forthwith, the angel withdrew from her sight. Years later, in one line, John has expressed the unspeakable thought. The word was made flesh and took up its habitation with us. The word, that is to say, the eternal and substantial utterance of God, his own and only Son a son who was not born at the commandment of his father, but who flashed forth from his bosom, God of God, light of light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He it is who was with God in the beginning. 
All things have been made by him, and without him is nothing made that has been made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. And the word was made flesh, adds St. John, that is to say, has formed unto himself a body out of the most pure blood of Mary. The Eternal Father has produced in the bosom of the Virgin the same Son whom he has from all eternity begotten within his own bosom. In the time of Jesus, the sanctuary of Herod was empty of its Ark of the Covenant, nor did its curtain of glory any more screen the holy receptacle. John shows how the Word did take up its abode in the midst of Israel, of a truth. He has pitched his tent in our midst, he says, and we have seen his glory, not blazing by brilliant intervals as did that of the ancient cloud but streaming upon the world in rays of splendor, which are the effulgence of grace and truth. Grace, by which we mean the life divine that animates our souls. Truth, by which we mean the light of God that illuminates them. Part 3. The Visitation of the Blessed Virgin to St. Elizabeth in those days Mary, rising up, went in haste toward the mountainous country, to the city of Utah. What prompted her to undertake so long a journey, one so unusual, too, when we recall how strict was the seclusion which custom had imposed upon a young Jewess after her betrothal? Are we to believe that Joseph having had knowledge of Mary's state, rejected her, and that she sought consolation in the society of Elizabeth, as well as escape from the hard-heartedness of men? Or better still, was she not led by a longing to unburden her heart, which was now overbrimming with its new gladness, and so sought the company of a soul capable of understanding her? It took only a few days for Mary to go from Nazareth to Utah. She traversed Judea, screening herself between the veil of a humility already perfect. Indeed, so forgetful was she of the eminence to which she had been elevated over all creation, that she gladly humbled herself thus, in order to discourse with this kinswoman of the divine honors vouchsafed to them. Wherefore, so soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's salutation within her dwelling, the child leaped within her and revealed to her the presence of the incarnate God. You are blessed from among all women, Elizabeth cried out, and the fruit of your womb is blessed. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come unto me? So soon as the voice of your salutation came to my ears, the child that I bear leapt in my breast. Then, reflecting upon the incredulity and chastisement of her husband, which set the serene faith of Mary in so much higher relief, Blessed, she cried, 
is she who hath believed that the word which the Lord hath spoken to her shall be accomplished. Amid these transports of surprise and joy, Mary remained calm and recollected. Her lips opened at last. But it was to praise God for this new largesse of his bounty toward her, for his providence toward the world, for his merciful goodness to all Israel. These three ideas sustain the burden of the whole Magnificat. My soul doth glorify the Lord, and my spirit is made exceeding glad in God my Savior, because he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. And behold, all generations shall proclaim me blessed, for the All-Powerful hath done great things to me, and holy is his name, and his mercy reacheth from age to age unto those who fear him. He hath showed forth the might of his arm, he hath scattered those who were proudly elated in the thoughts of their hearts. He casteth the powerful headlong from their thrones, and hath lifted up the humble. He hath filled the hungry with food, and sent away the rich with empty hands. This great interval in human destinies must result in the triumph of the veritable Israel, and in this thought the sacred canticle finds its final note of joy. He hath taken under his protection Israel his servant, being mindful of his mercies to Abraham and to his people from generation to generation. Inspired simply by the remembrance of the hymns of Israel and by the grace of which she was the spotless vessel, the Virgin, uplifted upon the wings of divine spirit, drew from her enraptured soul the measure of this canticle, as simple as it is sublime. Part 4. St. Joseph's Vision After nearly three months passed in her cousin's home, Mary returned to Nazareth. That she was soon to be a mother was, of course, at once made known, and Joseph was made acquainted with the bitterest of all human sorrows. He could not hesitate as to the duty of repudiating this affianced maiden, whom honor would not permit him to retain. Yet, as he was just, and knew the severity of the law toward the sinning woman, he resolved to spare Mary. The betrothment, considered among Jews as sacred as the marriage tie, like it could be broken by divorce. But although the act of separation was public in its nature, yet in certain cases usage allowed of its being drawn up in secret. Joseph chose this plan, which was at the same time in accordance with his duty and his grief. But while he was sadly pondering this step, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take unto you Mary, your espoused, for that which is born of her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son, and you shall give to him the name of Jesus, 
which means a savior. He it is who shall save his people from their sins. This, adds St. Matthew, was done to accomplish what the Lord had said by the mouth of a prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive in her womb and shall bring forth a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, that is, God with us. When Joseph had arisen from his sleep, he had no other thought beyond the desire to fulfill the command of the angel. He was eager to repair the unmerited outrage Mary had suffered in his thoughts. Nuptial ceremonies at once ushered the young spouse into his house, but he knew her not, pursues the sacred text, until the day when she brought forth a son and gave to him the name of Jesus. This concludes the first part of the Return to Order Moments Christmas presentation of The Nativity According to Abbé Constant-Henri Fouard. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returnerorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.